Hello and welcome to Womance's public access Jane Eyre read-along. Woo! The only public access Jane Eyre read-along where two people audibly sigh whenever Rochester does something shitty. It's like reading the book with your two best friends who want to talk to you about it. (laughs) We're definitely trying to influence your interpretation of the text. Absolutely, you don't get to read this just for yourself. But that's what you're here for. You're here for the color commentary. That's why you watch the color commentary on the Lord of the Rings Expanded Edition. Duh. Yeah, or why they always have like some zany person who doesn't know anything about the sport on ESPN 6. Yes, absolutely. Such a good example, Morgan. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm Isabeau. I'm reading the even chapters. I'm Morgan. I'm reading the odd chapters. And that means this week is for me. It's for my voice. Before we get to it, if you're coming in off the hot heels of chapter 20, you know what's happened. But for those of you who are dipping in after a potentially longer absence, things that you need to know before we dive into chapter 21. Rochester had this guy Mason show up and at two o'clock in the morning or some such, Jane is awake. She's awakened by a terrible cry in the night. Rochester asks for her help and a wet sponge, and she has to pass several hours dealing with a wounded Mr. Mason, whose name is Richard, and he's wounded. Rochester forbids her from speaking to him while he goes and gets the surgeon. Everything's taken care of in the dead of night. As dawn approaches, they pack Mr. Mason off, and Mr. Rochester and Mr. Mason have a weird interchange. And then Mr. Rochester asks Jane for a walk in the Primrose Garden. And as we know from our conversation with Rose Lerner, primroses aren't just roses. And he has this very weird conversation with her where he basically confesses to an MTV-style Cancun spring break mistakes that still stain and taint his existence. And he's looking for surcease and relief and asks Jane if he is allowed or deserves it. And just as she's about to sort of tackle this conversation, he hears... The other house guest, that's right. He's still in the middle of a house party. And he's like, you need to go through the other way so that we can't be seen together. Ugh, so embarrassing. So embarrassing. And uh, Jane walks off by herself as Mr. Rochester greets his guests. I didn't mention this when we recorded, but shuffling her off, it like reminds me of that scene in episode one of Shrill where the guy she sleeps with is always like trying to get her to leave without anyone knowing that she's been there there yeah overall just like an unflattering portrait of our two main characters true that and here we are chapter 21 hopefully they can redeem themselves hopefully we'll see we'll see sentiments are strange things, and so are sympathies, and so are signs. And the three combined make one mystery to which humanity has not yet found the key. I never laughed at presentiments in my life, because I have had strange ones of my own. Sympathies, I believe, exist, for instance, between far-distant, long-absent, wholly estranged relatives, asserting, notwithstanding their alienation, the unity of the source to which they're traced which each traces his origin. These workings baffle mortal comprehension, and signs, for aught we know, may be but the sympathies of nature with man. When I was a little girl, only six years old, one night I heard Bessie Levin say to Martha Abbott that she had been dreaming about a little child, and that to dream of children was a sure sign of trouble, either to oneself or one's kin. 
The saying might have worn out of my memory had not the circumstances immediately followed, which served indelibly to fix it there. The next day, Bessie was sent for home to the deathbed of her little sister. Of late, I'd often recalled this saying and this incident, for during the past week, scarcely a night had gone over my couch that had not brought with it a dream of an infant, which I sometimes hushed in my arms, sometimes dandled on my knee, sometimes watched playing with daisies on a lawn, or again, dabbling its hands in running water. I was a wailing child this night, and a laughing one the next. Now it nestled close to me, and now it ran from me. But whatever mood the apparition evinced, whatever aspect it wore, it failed not for seven successive nights to meet me the moment I entered the land of slumber. One of the lesser discussed themes of Jane Eyre is disliking children, which is kind of permeates the text in some weird ways. Very weird ways. This being one of them. Mm-hmm. This preamble is also reminding me that this book is never not supernatural, until I guess it's not. But maybe that's not even true. I did not like this iteration of one idea, this strange recurrence of one image, and I grew nervous as bedtime approached and the hour of the vision drew near. It was from companionship with this baby phantom I had been roused on that moonlight night when I heard the cry. It was on the afternoon of the day following I was summoned downstairs by a message that someone wanted me in Mrs. Fairfax's room. On repairing thither, I found a man waiting for me, having the appearance of a gentleman's servant. He was dressed in deep mourning, and the hat he held in his hand was surrounded with a crepe band. I dare say you hardly remember me, miss, he said, rising as I entered, but my name is Levin. I lived coachman with Mrs. Reed when you were at Gateshead, eight or nine years since, and I live there still. Oh, Robert, how do you do? I remember you very well. You used to give me a ride sometimes on Miss Georgiana's bay pony. And how is Bessie? You are married to Bessie? Yes, miss. My wife is very hardy, thank you. My wife is very hardy, thank you. She's stout and delicious. She brought me another little one about two months since. We have three now, and both mother and child are thriving. And are the family well at the house, Robert? I am sorry I can't give you better news of them, miss. They are very badly at present, in great trouble. I hope no one is dead, I said, glancing at his black dress. He, too, looked down at the crepe round his hat and replied, Mr. John died yesterday, was a week, at his chambers in London. Mr. John? Yes. And how does his mother bear it? Why, you see, Miss Eyre, it is not a common mishap. His life has been very wild. These last three years he gave himself up to strange ways, and his death was shocking. I heard from Bessie he was not doing well. Doing well, he could not do worse. He ruined his health and his estate among the worst men and worst women. He got into debt and into jail. His mother helped him out twice, but as soon as he was free, he returned to his old companions and habits. His head was not strong. The knaves he lived among fooled him beyond anything I ever heard. He came down to Gateshead about three weeks ago and wanted Mrs. to give up all to him. Mrs. refused. Her means have long been reduced by his extravagance. So he went back, and the next news was that he was dead. How he died, God knows. They say he killed himself. I was silent. The tidings were frightful. Robert Levin resumed. Mrs. had been out of health herself for some time. She had got very stout, but was not strong with it. Like my wife. (laughs) That was what I was thinking. That's how I did the fuck. (laughs) And the loss of money and fear of poverty were quite breaking her down. The information about Mr. John's death and the manner of it came too suddenly. Brought on a stroke. She was three days without speaking, but last Tuesday she seemed rather better. She appeared as if she wanted to say something, and kept making signs to my wife and mumbling. It was only yesterday morning, however, that Bessie understood she was pronouncing your name, and at last she made out the words, Bring Jane. Fetch Jane Eyre. 
I want to speak to her. Bessie is not sure whether she is in her right mind or means anything by the words, but she told Miss Reed and Miss Georgiana and they advised to send for you. The young ladies put it off at first, but their mother grew so restless and said, Jane, Jane, so many times that at last they consented. I left Gateshead yesterday, and if you can get ready, miss, I would like to take you back with me early tomorrow morning. Yes, Robert, I shall be ready. It seems to me that I ought to go. I think so too, miss. Bessie said she was sure you would not refuse, but I suppose you will have to ask leave before you can get off. Yes, and I will do it now. And having directed him to the servants' hall and recommended him to the care of John's wife and the attentions of John himself, I went in search of Mr. Rochester. He was not in any of the lower rooms. He was not in the yard, the stables, or the grounds. I asked Mrs. Fairfax if she had seen him. Yes, she believed he was playing billiards with Miss Ingram. To the billiard room I hastened. The click of balls and the hum of voices resounded thence. Mr. Rochester, Miss Ingram, the two Mrs. Eshton, and their admirers were all busied in the game. It required some courage to disturb so interesting a party. My errand, however, was one I could not defer, so I approached the master where he stood at Miss Ingram's side. She turned as I drew near and looked at me haughtily. Her eyes seemed to demand, What can the creeping creature want now? And when I said in a low voice, Mr. Rochester... She made a movement as if tempted to order me away. I remember her appearance at the moment was very graceful and very striking. She wore a morning robe of sky-blue crepe. A gauzy azure scarf was twisted in her hair. She had been all animation with the game, and irritated pride did not lower the expression of her haughty lineaments. Does that person want you? She inquired of Mr. Rochester. And Mr. Rochester turned to see who the person was. He made a curious grimace, one of his strange and equivocal demonstrations threw down his cue and followed me from the room. Well, Jane, he said as he rested his back against the schoolroom door, which he had shut. If you please, sir, I want leave of absence for a week or two. What to do? Where to go? To see a sick lady who has sent for me. What sick lady? Where does she live? At Gateshead in Beepshire. Arugatshire. <laughs> that is a hundred miles off. Who may she be that sends for people to see her at that distance? Her name is Reed, sir. Mrs. Reed. Reed of Gateshead? There was a Reed of Gateshead, a magistrate. It's his widow, sir. And what have you to do with her? How do you know her? Mr. Reed was my uncle and my mother's brother. The deuce he was. You never told me that before. You always said that you had no relations. None that would own me, sir. Mr. Reed is dead and his wife cast me off. Why? Because I was poor and burdensome and she disliked me. But Reed left children. You must have cousins. Sir George Lynn was talking of Reed of Gateshead yesterday, who he said was one of the veriest rascals of on town. And Ingram was mentioning Georgiana Reed of the same place, who was much admired for her beauty a season or two ago in London. Oh, a season or two ago. Ooh. Blooms off the rose. Ooh, that hurts. Ouch. Yeah, I'm glad she wasn't there to hear that. Well, she would have hated that. Which one was the little entrepreneur? Was it Georgiana? I think it was the other one. Georgiana's the... The pretty little... Very love one. And the other one is the little entrepreneur who's like keeping interests on her siblings. Yeah, and her mother. <clears throat> oh my God, I bet she hated John Reed. I bet she's truly grown to hate her brother. I hope she married somebody who is in finance and she's living a good little life. But otherwise, this would be really terrible for the sisters. You'd think we'd never read this book before, but you really just remember <laughs> the main story. Yeah, these ancillary characters really leave your mind. I have to say, reading a book out loud is changeful. Mm-hmm. 
Agreed. John Reed is dead too, sir. He ruined himself and half ruined his family, and is supposed to have committed suicide. The news so shocked his mother that he brought her on an apoplectic attack. And what good can you do to her? Nonsense, Jane. I would never think of running a hundred miles to see an old lady who will, perhaps, be dead before you reach her. Besides, you say she cast you off. Yes, sir, but that is long ago, and when her circumstances were very different. I could not be easy to neglect her wishes now. She wants revenge. Yes, she do. How long will you stay? As short a time as possible, sir. Promise me only stay a week. I had better not pass my word. I might be obliged to break it. At all events, you will come back. You will not be induced under any pretext to take up a permanent residence with her. Oh no, I shall certainly return if all be well. And who goes with you? You don't travel a hundred miles alone? No, sir. She has sent her coachman, a person to be trusted. Yes, sir. She has lived ten years in the family. Mr. Rochester meditated. When do you wish to go? Early tomorrow morning, sir. Well, you must have money. You can't travel without money, and I dare say you have not much. I have given you no salary yet. How much have you in the world, Jane? He asked, smiling. It's like money is literally so immaterial. Like he knows that she needs it, but he's like, what's money? You don't have any. How much do you have? He thinks it's funny. Yeah. He thinks it's silly. Isn't she of strange sort to him? I drew out my purse, a meager thing it was. Five shillings, sir. He took the purse, poured the hoard into his palm, and chuckled over it after it as if its scantiness pleased him. What a dick. Soon he produced his pocketbook. Here, said he, offering me a note. It was 50 pounds, and he owed me but 15. Holy shit. I told him I had no change. <laughs> I can give you five shillings. He knows you don't have change, Jane. He just cackled over your shillings. See, I think he is interested in the power dynamic of employer-employee. I don't think he's, like, so beholden to the idea that it doesn't exist. I think it does, and I think in this moment he likes that he can give something to her because she's so... She needs something from him, and she's had to ask him for it. Right, and since she, like, literally never does that and doesn't trespass that line herself, like, this is a moment where he really can do something for her, and he is truly taking pleasure in it yeah and it's gross because of the power dynamic yeah but i don't think he's he's like i get to do something for the woman i love i think that's how he's rationalizing it not that like i have so much power over her i think he's blinded by how much power he has over her like he just doesn't see it that way i just feel like if you have the chance to not bring money into personal relationships don't bring money into personal relationships i mean it's like always there right like you go out with a friend and you like have a bar tab but like keeping it as like equivocal as possible or like creating an illusion of equivocacy at least if you need to it's just Mm -hmm. ugh but it's like impossible anyways I don't want change you know that take your wages I declined accepting more than was my due he scowled first then as if recollecting something he said right right Better not give you all now. You would perhaps stay away three months if you had 50 pounds. There are 10. Is it not plenty? See, he's actively controlling her with money now. Yes, sir. But now you owe me five. And it's right back. Right back to classic Jane. Let's see how Rochester reacts. Come back for it, then. I am your banker for 40 pounds. Mr. Rochester, I may as well mention another matter of business to you while I have the opportunity. Matter of business? I'm curious to hear it. You have as good as informed me, sir, that you are going shortly to be married? Yes. What then? In that case, sir, Adele ought to go to school. I am sure you will perceive the necessity of it. To get her out of my bride's way, who might otherwise walk over her rather too emphatically. There's sense in that suggestion, not a doubt of it. Adele, as you say, must go to school, and you, of course, must march straight to the devil. (laughs) 
I hope not, sir, but I must seek another situation somewhere. In course, he exclaimed with a twang of voice and distortion of features equally fantastic and ludicrous. He looked at me some minutes. An old Madame Reed, or the Misses, her daughters, will be solicited by you to seek a place, I suppose. No, sir, I am not on such terms with my relatives as would justify me in asking favors of them, but I shall advertise. You shall walk up the pyramids of Egypt, he growled. At your peril, you advertise. I wish I had only offered you a sovereign instead of ten pounds. Give me back nine pounds, Jane. I've a use for it. Jesus! And so have I, sir, I returned, putting my hands in my purse behind me. I could not spare the money on any account. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I think maybe we can, like, spell this word out rather than... Taking a moment to Google it. It's got a D on it. So here's what I'm gonna <laughs> say. Like, it's not the N-word, but it is a word that sounds very similar to it. And it's also disparaging. Very disparaging. And while I don't think, like, the etymology tree all goes back to the same place, I think I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> sure. So we can just call her uh, Little He's saying she's skin being stingy. Flint. Yeah. Little Skin Flint. Said he. Do you want to say anything on it? <laughs> no. No. That's it, right? I mean, it's an old-timey word for being stingy and rude. Yeah. It sounds like the N-word. We don't say it in common parlance anymore, and I don't think we need to say anything else about it. No. And, like, it's truly one of those words where, like, when you're in middle school and you read the word organism, and then you end up saying orgasm five times in the seventh grade, right? So you just never volunteer to popcorn read when that word is on the page. Yeah. And this is a bad. This is not orgasm. No. This is a bad word. Yeah, this is a bad word. We're not going to do it. Mm Mm-mm. Um, okay. Refusing me a pecuniary request. Give me five pounds, Jane. Talk about stingy. God, everything about this scene. Like, and I think he's flirting with her. Yeah. I think at this point he's flirting with her. Because she's done something playful. She's hidden it behind her back. But she's probably not being playful. (laughs) She's like, I need this money to go home. It's 100 miles. Not five shillings, sir. Nor five pence. Just let me look at the cash. No, sir. You are not to be trusted. Jane! Sir, promise me one thing. I'll promise you anything, sir, that I think I am likely to perform. Not to advertise and to trust this quest of a situation to me. I'll find you one in time. I shall be glad so to do, sir, if you in your turn will promise that I and Adele shall be both safe out of the house before your bride enters it. Very well. Very well. I'll pledge my word on it. You go tomorrow, then? Yes, sir. Early. Shall you come down for the drawing room after dinner? No, sir. I must prepare for the journey. And you and I must bid goodbye for a little while. I suppose so, sir. And how do people perform that ceremony of parting, Jane? Teach me. I'm not quite up to it. They say farewell, or any other form they prefer. Then say it. Farewell, Mr. Rochester, for the present. What must I say? The same, if you like, sir. Farewell, Miss Eyre, for the present. Is that all? Yes. It seems stingy to my notions, and dry, and unfriendly. I should like something else, a little addition to the right. If one shook hands, for instance. Uh, But no, that would not content me either. So you'll do more than say farewell, Jane? It is enough, sir. As much goodwill may be conveyed in one hearty word as in many. Very likely. But it is blank and cool. 
farewell. How long is he going to stand with his back against that door? I asked myself. <laughs> See, like, as soon as he does anything feeling, she retreats. She's like, <laughs> details. <laughs> she cannot. She has become conscientious of the flirtation, that it's being pushed. I want to commence my packing. The dinner bell rung, and suddenly away he bolted without another syllable. I saw him no more during the day and was off before he had risen in the morning. Wow. <sighs> Sounds like two or tangoing. Teasing. This book is teasing. I reached the lodge at Gateshead about five o'clock in the afternoon of the 1st of May. I stepped in there before going up the hall. It was very clean and neat. The ornamental windows were hung with little white curtains. The floor was spotless. The grate and fire irons were burnished bright, and the fire burned clear. Bessie sat on the hearth, nursing her last born, and Robert and his sister played quietly in a corner. "'Bless you! I knew you would come!' exclaimed Mrs. Levin as I entered. "'Yes, Bessie,' said I after I'd kissed her, "'and I trust I am not too late. How is Mr. Reed? Alive still, I hope. Mrs. Reed. Alive still, I hope.' I was like, "'God, Jane, short memory!' <laughs> I missed the S. "'Yes, she is alive, and more sensible and collected than she was. The doctors say she may linger a week or two yet, but he hardly thinks she will finally recover. Has she mentioned me lately? She was talking of you only this morning and wishing you would come, but she's sleeping now, or was ten minutes ago when I sat up at the house. She generally lies in a kind of lethargy all afternoon and wakes up about six or seven. Will you rest yourself here an hour, miss, and then I will go up with you?' I love Bessie. I'm so glad it wasn't the last time they saw each other. Robert here entered, and Bessie laid her sleeping child in the cradle and went to welcome him. Afterwards, she insisted on my taking off my bonnet and having some tea, for she said I looked pale and tired. I was glad to accept her hospitality, and I submitted to be relieved of my traveling garb just as passively as I used to let her undress me when a child. Isabel, how long would it take to go 100 miles in a carriage? Days. Will you Google it? Sure. I'm really curious. Mm, what do you think? I think five days. No, three days, because he said you can be gone a week. If I went 100 miles in a car, it would take me two hours. But horses don't travel at 60 or even 70 miles an hour. No, but I'm trying to work backwards. I think they probably go 20 at a clip, but you have to change horses too. Yeah, you'd have to stop a lot more. Plus, like, bad roads. I'm actually going to say maybe just, like, something like 18 hours. At that rate, a horse and carriage can cover 100 to 150 miles in 28 hours, including stops to rest and eat. Right. Good job. Who said math wasn't fun? Who said that? You shush. Isabeau and I just had a lot of fun with math. We did. That was fun. God, that is a long travel. Yeah. And that's coming from two Americans. <laughs> it's true. What's the longest you would drive in a day to go to some place? And you only stay in that place for like one day and then you drive back. Oh, the longest that I would do that for a one day -er, as a one day tripper, uh, six and a half hours is my max. Cause it's like, that's just too much driving to do the fast turnaround. If I'm staying two nights, I can push that up to nine hours. I've known you to drive 16 hours for a one day trip on the Lark. What trip was that? You would just go to Missouri for like a day. That wasn't a day, that was two days. And yeah, that's my seven hours. So like if I sleep two nights, seven hours there and then seven hours back. That's right. See, I always think of like the journey from like where you and I are from to Chicago as like 10 hours because the first time I drove it, I had to go all the way to the North Shore suburbs. But it is in fact just like six or seven hours. Mm -hmm. And if you're not driving from Kansas City, like Columbia is seven hours. On a good day, you can make it in six and a half. I mean, St. Louis is only four and a half hours by car. Now I'm a Kansan, but I was raised by Texan. I will drive for 12 hours for a one day trip. For a one day? Just one sleep? Yeah. 
One sleep. I guess technically two sleeps, because I would sleep when I get there, and then I would sleep before I left. Yeah. See, that's fine. That that seems reasonable to me. I think nine hours is like, yeah, that, that seems like the upper limit. But it seems like very Texan, Alaskan, Californian. Like, if it takes you 12 hours to drive from one end of your... Can you even drive from end to end of Texas, east to west in 12 hours? I don't think so. I don't think you can either. And you certainly can't do it north to south. Yeah, it's just bigger here. Like the traffic patterns you hit in California, you won't go very far Mm -mm. in 12 hours. I actually learned something really interesting on a TikTok. Another divergent (laughs) conversation. I just think more (laughs) Europeans should know how like big America is because they always get here and then they like really poorly plan their trip. But uh, a lot of predominantly white towns in California were able to actively campaign to not have like highways and freeway systems cut across them. And so now there are these huge traffic bottlenecks in black areas in California and uh, just like predominantly POC areas in California. And like the map is crazy. It's like a Trader Joe's map. So even our highway system is racially determined. I mean, that's true here in Chicago. The highways that we have just like ripped through black communities. And pretty much all major cities yeah okay old times crowded back fast on me as i was watching her bustling about setting out the tea tray with her best china cutting bread and butter toasting a tea cake in between whiles giving little robert or jane an occasional tap or push just as she used to give me in former days jane bessie had retained her quick temper as well as her light foot and good looks tea ready i was going to approach the table but she desired me to sit still quite in her old peremptory tones. I must be served at the fireside, she said, and she placed before me a little round stand with my cup and a plate of toast, absolutely as she used to accommodate me with some privately purloined dainty on a nursery chair. Aww. And I smiled and obeyed her as in bygone days. This is so sweet. Bessie is such like the cool side of the pillow in this book, isn't she? She wanted to know if I was happy at Thornfield Hall and what sort of a person the mistress was. And when I told her there was only a master, whether he was a nice gentleman and if I liked him, I told her he was rather an ugly man, (laughs) but quite a gentleman and that he treated me kindly, and I was content. Then I went on to describe to her the gay company that had lately been staying at the house, and to these details Bessie listened with interest. They were precisely the kind of things she relished. In such conversation, an hour was soon gone. Bessie restored to me my bonnet, etc., and accompanied by her, I quitted the lodge for the hall. It was also accompanied by her that I had, nearly nine years ago, walked down the path I was now ascending. On a dark, misty, raw morning in January, I had left a hostile roof with a desperate and embittered heart, a sense of outlawry and almost of reprobation, to seek the chilly harborage of Lowood, that born so far away and unexplored. The same hostile roof now again rose before me, My prospects were doubtful yet, and I had yet an aching heart. I felt as a wanderer on the face of the earth, but I experienced firmer trust in myself and my own powers, and less withering dread of oppression. The gaping wound of my wrongs, too, was now quite healed, and the flame of resentment extinguished. (laughs) So say you. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You shall go into the breakfast room first, said Bessie as she preceded me through the hall. The young ladies will be there. In another moment, I was within that apartment. There was every article of furniture looking just as it did the morning I was first introduced to Mr. Brocklehurst. The very rug he had stood upon, I could distinguish the two volumes of Buick's British Birds occupying their old place on the third shelf and Gulliver's Travels and Arabian Nights arranged just above. The inanimate objects were not changed, but the living room was altered past recognition. 
two young ladies appeared before me, one very tall, almost as tall as Miss Ingram, very thin too, with a sallow face and severe mien. There she is. There was something ascetic in her look, which was augmented by extreme plainness of a straight-skirted black stuffed dress, a starched linen collar, hair combed away from the temples, and the nun-like ornament of a string of ebony beads and a crucifix. This, I felt sure, was Eliza, though I could trace little resemblance to her former self in that elongated and colorless visage. The other was a certainly Georgiana, but not Georgiana I remembered, the slim and fairy-like girl of eleven. This was a full-blown, very plump damsel, fair as waxwork with handsome and regular features, languishing blue eyes, and ringleted yellow hair. The hue of her dress was black too, but its fashion was so different from her sister's, so much more flowing and becoming. It looked as stylish as the others looked puritanical. In each of the sisters there was one trait of the mother, and only one. The thin and pallid elder daughter had her parents' caring gorm eye, smoky brown or topaz yellow rock crystal. The blooming and luxuriant younger girl had her contour of jaw and chin, perhaps a little softened, but still imparting an indescribable hardness to the countenance, otherwise so voluptuous and buxom. Both ladies, as I advanced, rose to welcome me, and both addressed me by the name of Miss Eyre. Eliza's greeting was delivered in a short, abrupt voice, without a smile, and then she sat down again, fixed her eyes on the fire, and seemed to forget me. Georgiana added to her, How do you do? Several commonplaces about my journey, the weather, and so on, uttered in a rather drawling tone, and accompanied by sundry side glances that measured me from head to foot. How traversing the folds of my drab, merino pelisse, and now lingering on the plain trimming of my cottage bonnet, Young ladies have a remarkable way of letting you know that they think you a quiz without actually saying the words. An odd person is what a quiz is. A certain superliciousness of look, coolness of manner, nonchalance of tone, express fully their sentiments on the point without committing them by any positive rudeness, the word or deed. I was uh, watching The Bachelor New Zealand and I commented uh, to my co-watcher that it really helps to have family from the South in order to interpret what the ladies of New Zealand meant in their confessionals. It's almost like polite cultures <laughs> have the exact same disparaging sentiments, just different ways of delivering them. A sneer, however, whether covert or open, had now no longer that power over at me it once possessed. Sure, that's why you noticed it. As I sat between my cousins, I was surprised to find how easy I felt under the total neglect of the one and the semi-sarcastic attentions of the other. Eliza did not mortify, nor Georgiana ruffle me. The fact was, I had other things to think about. Within the last few months, feelings had been stirred in me so much more potent than any they could raise. Pains and pleasures so much more acute and exquisite had been excited than in any it was in their power to inflict or bestow that their heirs gave me no concern, either for good or bad. How is Mrs. Reed? I asked soon, looking calmly at Georgiana, who had thought fit to bridle at the direct address, as if it were an unexpected liberty. Mrs. Reed? Oh, Mama, you mean. She is extremely poorly. I doubt if you can see her tonight. If, said I, you would just step upstairs and tell her I am come, I should be much obliged to you. Georgiana almost started and she opened her blue eyes wild and wide. I know she had a particular wish to see me, I added, and I would not defer attending to her desire longer than is absolutely necessary. Mama dislikes being disturbed in an evening, remarked Eliza. I soon rose, quietly took off my bonnet and gloves, uninvited, and said I would just step out to Bessie, who was, I dared say, in the kitchen, and ask her to ascertain whether Mrs. Reed was disposed to receive me or not tonight. I went, and having found Bessie and dispatched her on 
my errand, proceeded to take further measures. It had therefore been my habit always to shrink from arrogance. I received as I had been today, I should, a year ago, have resolved to quit Gateshead the very next morning. Now it was disclosed to me all at once that that would be a foolish plan. I had taken a journey of a hundred miles to see my aunt, and I must stay with her till she was better or dead. As to her daughter's pride or folly, I must put it on one side, make myself independent of it. So I addressed the housekeeper, asked her to show me a room, told her I should probably be a visitor here for a week or two, had my trunk conveyed to my chamber, and followed it thither myself. I met Bessie on the landing. Mrs. is awake, said she. I have told her you are here. Come and let us see if she will know you. I did not need to be guided to the well-known room, to which I had so often been summoned for chastisement or reprimand in a former day. I hastened before Bessie and softly opened the door. A shaded light stood on the table, for it was now getting dark. There was a great four-post bedstead with amber hangings as of old. There was a toilet table, the armchair, and the footstool, at which I had a hundred times been sentenced to kneel, to ask pardon for offenses by me uncommitted. I looked to a certain corner near, half expecting to see the slim outline of a once-dreaded switch, which used to lurk there, waiting to leap out, imp-like, and lace my quivering palm or shrinking neck. I approached the bed. I opened the curtains and leaned over the high-piled pillows. Well did I remember Mrs. Reed's face, and I eagerly sought the familiar image. It is a happy thing that time quells the longings of vengeance and hushes the promptings of rage and aversion. I had left this woman in bitterness and hate, and I came back to her now with no other emotion than a sort of ruth for her great sufferings, and a strong yearning to forget and forgive all injuries to be reconciled and clasp hands in amity. The well-known face was there, stern, relentless as ever. There was that peculiar eye which nothing could melt, and the somewhat raised, imperious, despotic eyebrow. How often had it lowered on me menace and hate, and how the recollection of that childhood's terrors and sorrows revived as I traced its harsh line now. And yet I stopped and kissed her. She looked at me. Is this Jane Eyre? She said. Yes, Aunt Reed. How are you, dear aunt? I had once vowed that I would never call her aunt again. I thought it no sin to forget and break the vow now. My fingers had fastened on her hand, which lay outside the sheet, and she pressed mine kindly. I should at that moment have experienced true pleasure, but my unimpressionable natures had not so soon softened, nor are they natural antipathies so readily eradicated. Mrs. Reed took her hand away, and turning her face rather from me, she remarked that the night was warm. Again she regarded me so icily, I felt at once that her opinion of me, her feeling toward me, was unchanged and unchangeable. I knew by her stony eye, opaque to tenderness, indissoluble to tears, that she was resolved to consider me bad to the last. Because to believe me good would give her no generous pleasure, only a sense of mortification. I felt pain, and then I felt ire, and then I felt a determination to subdue her, to be her mistress, in spite of her nature and her will. My tears had risen just as in childhood. I ordered them back to their source. I brought a chair to the bedhead. I sat down and leaned over the pillow. You sent for me, I said, and I am here, and it is my intention to stay till I see how you get on. Oh, of course. <sighs> you have seen my daughters? Yes. Well, you may tell them I wish you to stay till I can talk some things over with you I have on my mind. Tonight it is too late, and I have difficulty in recalling them. There was something I wished to say. Let me see. The wandering look and changed utterance told what wreck 
had taken place in her once vigorous frame. Turning restlessly, she drew the bedclothes round her. My elbow resting on the corner of the quilt fixed it down. She was at once irritated. Sit up, said she. Don't annoy me with holding the clothes fast. Are you Jane Eyre? I am Jane Eyre. I have had more trouble with that child than anyone would believe. Such a burden to be left on my hands and so much annoyance as she caused me daily and hourly with her incomprehensible disposition. and her sudden starts of temper and her continual unnatural watchings of one's movements, I declare she'd talk to me once like something mad or like a fiend. No child ever spoke or looked as she did. I was glad to get her away from the house. What did they do with her at Lowood? The fever broke out there and many of the pupils died. She, however, did not die. But I said she did. I wish she had died. Strange wish, Mrs. Reed. Why do you hate her so? I had a dislike for her mother always, for she was my husband's only sister, and a great favorite with him. He opposed the family's disowning her when she made her low marriage, and when news came of her death, he wept like a simpleton. He would send for the baby, though I entreated him rather to put it out to nurse and pay for its maintenance. I hated it the first time I set my eyes on it, a sickly, whining, pining thing. It would wail in its cradle all night long, not screaming heartily like any other child, but whimpering and moaning. Reed pitied it, and he used to nurse it and notice it as if it had been his own, more, indeed, than he ever noticed his own at that age. He would try to make my children friendly to the little beggar. My darlings could not bear it, and he was angry with them when they showed their dislike. In his last illness, he had brought it continually to his bedside, but an hour before he died, he bound me by a vow to keep the creature. I would as soon have been charged with a pauper brat out of the workhouse, but he was weak, naturally weak. John does not at all resemble his father, and I am glad of it. John is like me, and like my brothers. He is quite a Gibson. Oh, I wish he would cease tormenting me with letters for money. I have no more money to give him. We are getting poor. I must send away half the servants and shut up part of the house or let it off. I cannot submit to do that. And how are we to get on? Two-thirds of my income goes in paying interest on mortgages. John gambles dreadfully and always loses. Poor boy. He is beset by sharpers. John is sunk and graded. His look is frightful. I feel ashamed for him when I see him. She was getting much excited. I think I had better leave her now, said I to Bessie, who stood on the other side of the bed. Perhaps you had, miss, but she often talks in this way toward night. In the morning, she is calmer. I rose. Stop! exclaimed Mrs. Reed. There is another thing I wish to say. He threatens me. He continually threatens me with his own death or mine, and I dream sometimes that I see him laid out with a great wound in his throat or with a swelled and blackened face. I am come to a strange pass. I have heavy troubles. What is to be done? How is the money to be had? Bessie now endeavored to persuade her to take a sedative draft, which she succeeded with difficulty. Soon after, Mrs. Reed grew more composed and sunk into a dozing state. I then left her. More than ten days elapsed. I had again any conversation with her. She continued either delirious or lethargic, and the doctor forbade everything which could painfully excite her. Meantime, I got on as well as I could with Georgiana and Eliza. They were very cold indeed at first. Eliza would sit half the day, sewing, reading, or writing, scarcely utter a word either to me or her sister. Georgiana would chatter nonsense to her canary bird by the hour. I thought I missed a word there, and it was going to be a metaphor. It's not. She's talking to a canary. And take no notice of me. But I was determined not to seem at a loss for occupation or amusement. I brought my drying materials with me, and they served me for both. So she's already stayed past a week. 
past Mr. Rochester's wishes. Provided with a case of pencils and some sheets of paper, I used to take a seat apart from them, near the window, and busy myself in sketching fancy vignettes, representing any scene that happened momentarily to shape itself in the ever-shifting kaleidoscope of imagination. A glimpse of sea between two rocks, the rising moon and a ship crossing its disk, a group of reeds and water flags and a naiad's head crowned with lotus flowers rising out of them, an elf sitting in a hedge sparrow's nest under a wreath of hawthorn bloom. One morning, I fell to sketching a face. What sort of a face it was to be, I did not know or care. I took a soft black pencil, gave it a broad point, and worked away. Soon I had traced on the paper a broad and prominent forehead and a square lower outline of visage. That contour gave me pleasure. My fingers proceeded actively to fill it with features. Strongly marked horizontal eyebrows must be traced under that brow. Then followed naturally a well-defined nose with a straight ridge and full nostrils. Then a flexible-looking mouth, by no means narrow. Then a firm chin with a decided cleft down the middle of it. And of course some black whiskers were wanted. And some jetty hair tufted on the temples and waved above the forehead. Now for the eyes. I'd left them to the last because they required the most careful working. I drew them large. I shaped them well. The eyelashes traced long and somber. The irids lustrous and large. Good, but not quite the thing, I thought as I surveyed the effect. They want more force and spirit. I wrought the shades blacker, that the lights might flash more brilliantly. A happy touch or two secured success. There, I had a friend's face under my gaze. And what did it signify that those young ladies turned their backs on me? I looked at it. I smiled at the speaking likeness. I was absorbed and content. Is that a portrait of someone you know? Asked Eliza, who had approached me unnoticed. I responded that it was merely a fancy head and hurried it beneath the other sheets. Of course I lied. It was in fact a very faithful representation of Mr. Rochester. But what was that to her or to anyone but myself? Georgiana also advanced to look. The other drawings pleased her much, but she called that an ugly man. They both seemed surprised at my skill. I offered to sketch their portraits and each in turn sat for a pencil outline. And Georgiana produced her album. I promised to contribute a watercolor drawing. This put her at once into good humor. She proposed to walk in the grounds. Before we had been out two hours, we were deep in a confidential conversation. She had favored me with a description of the brilliant winter she had spent in London two seasons ago, of the admiration she had there excited, the attention she had received, and I even got hints of the titled conquest she had made. In the course of the afternoon and evening, these hints were enlarged on. Various soft conversations were reported and sentimental scenes represented, and, in short, a volume of a novel of fashionable life was that day improvised by her for my benefit. The communications were renewed from day to day. They always ran on the same theme, herself, her loves, and woes. It was strange she never once adverted either to her mother's illness or her brother's death or the present gloomy state of the family prospects. Her mind seemed wholly taken up in reminiscences of past gaiety and aspirations after dissipations to come. She passed about five minutes each day in her mother's sick room, and no more. Eliza still spoke little. She had evidently no time to talk. I never saw a busier person than she seemed to be, yet it was difficult to say what she did, or rather, to discover any result of her diligence. She had an alarum to call her up early clock with a chime or bell, so an alarm. I know not how she occupied herself before breakfast, but after that meal she divided her time into regular portions, and each hour had an allotted task. Three times a day she studied a little book, which I found on inspection was a common prayer book. I asked her once which was the great attraction of the volume, and she had said, 
the rubric, written directions for the conduct of a divine service. Three hours later, she gave to stitching, with gold thread, the border of a square of crimson cloth, almost large enough for a carpet. In addition to my inquiries after the use of this article, she informed me that it was to cover the altar of a new church lately erected near Gateshead. Two hours she devoted to her diary. Jesus. Two to working by herself in the kitchen garden, and one to the regulation of her accounts. <laughs> she seemed to want no company, no conversation. I believe she was happy in her way. This routine sufficed to her, and nothing annoyed her so much as the occurrence of any incident which forced her to vary its clockwork regularity. She told me one evening, when more disposed to be communicative than usual, that John's conduct and the threatened ruin of the family had been a source of profound affliction to her, and she had now, she said, settled her mind and formed her resolution. Her own fortune she had taken care to secure, and when her mother died, and it was wholly improbable, she tranquilly remarked, that she should either recover or linger long, she would execute a long-cherished project, seek a retirement where punctual habits would be permanently secured from disturbance, and place safe barriers between herself and a frivolous word. I asked if Georgiana would accompany her. Of course not. Georgiana and she had nothing in common. They never had. She would not be burdened with her society for any consideration. Georgiana should take her own course, and she, Eliza, would take hers. Georgiana, when not unburdening her heart to me, spent most of her time lying on the sofa, writing about the dullness of the house, and wishing over and over again that her Aunt Gibson send her an invitation up to town. It would be so much better, she said, if she could only get out of the way for a month or two, till all was over. I did not ask what she meant by all being over, but I suppose she referred to the expected decease of her mother, and the gloomy sequel of funeral rites. Eliza generally took no more notice of her sister's indolence and complaints than if no such murmuring, lounging object had been before her. One day, however, she put away her account book and unfolded her embroidery. She suddenly took her up thus. Georgiana, a more vain and absurd animal than you, was certainly never allowed to cumber the earth. You have no right to be born, for you take no use of life. Jesus. Instead of living for, in and with yourself, as a reasonable being ought, you seek only to fasten your feebleness on some other person's strength. If no one can be found willing to burden her or himself with such a fat, weak, puffy, useless thing, you cry out that you are ill-treated, neglected, miserable. Then, too, existence for you must be a scene of continual change and excitement, or else the world is a dungeon. You must be admired. You must be courted. You must be flattered. You must have music, dancing, and society, or languish you die away. Have you no sense to devise a system which will make you independent of all efforts and all wills but your own? Take one day. Share it into sections. To each section, apportion its task. Leave no stray, unemployed quarters of an hour, ten minutes, five minutes. Do each piece of business in its turn with method and with rigid regularity. The day will close almost before you are aware it has begun. And you are indebted to no one for helping you to get rid of one vacant moment. You have had to seek no one's company conversation, sympathy, forbearance. You have lived, in short, as an independent being ought to do. Take this advice, the first and last I shall offer you. Then you will not want me or anyone else, happen what may. Neglect it, go on as heretofore, craving, whining, and idling, and suffer the result of your idiocy, however bad and insufferable they may be. I tell you this plainly, and listen, for though I shall no more repeat what I am about to say, I shall steadily act on it. After my mother's death, I wash my hands of you. And from the day her coffin is carried to the vault in Gateshead Church, you and I will be as 
separate as if we had never known each other. You need not think that. Because we chance to be born of the same parents, I shall suffer you to fasten me down by even the feeblest claim. I tell you this, if the whole human race, ourselves accepted, were swept away, and we too stood alone on the earth, I would leave you in the old world and betake myself to the new. She closed her lips. You might have spared yourself the trouble of delivering that tirade, answered Georgiana. Everybody knows you are the most selfish, heartless creature in existence, and I know your spiteful hatred toward me. I've had a specimen of it before in the trick you played me about Lord Edwin's Vare. You could not bear me to be raised above you, to have a title, to be received into circles where you dare not show your face, and so you acted the spy and informer and ruined my prospects forever. Georgiana took out her handkerchief and blew her nose for an hour afterward. Eliza sat cold, impassable, and assiduously industrious. True, generous feeling is made small account of by some. But here were two natures rendered. For the one intolerably acrid, the other despicably savorless, for the want of it. Feeling without judgment is a washy draft indeed, but judgment untempered by feeling is too bitter and husky a morsel for human deglution. Now that's true. It was a wet and windy afternoon. Georgiana had fallen asleep on the sofa over the perusal of a novel. Eliza was gone to attend a saint's day service at the new church. For in matters of religion, she was a rigid formalist. No weather ever prevented the punctual discharge of what she considered her devotional duties. Fair or foul, she went to church thrice every Sunday and as often on weekdays as there were prayers. I bethought myself to go upstairs and see how the dying woman sped. <laughs> Shit. It's weird that everybody's just like waiting for this woman to die. It's like you're just like waiting from this interminable like liminal space of just like having to like repeat every day, waiting to do the next thing. Hey man, it happens. Yeah, dude. To this very day, always brings out the worst. Like, even if you're doing your best, even if you're from a loving family, like, there's going to be a moment where you say something insufferable to a sibling. Yeah, because it's like, it's so much emotional weight to bear. Yeah who lay there almost unheeded. The very servants paid her but a remittent attention. The hired nurse, being little looked after, would slip out of the room whenever she could. Bessie was faithful, but she had her own family to mind and could only come occasionally to the hall. I found a sick room unwatched, as I had expected. No nurse was there. The patient lay still and seemingly lethargic. Her livid face sunk in the pillows. The fire was dying in the grate. I renewed the fuel, rearranged the bedclothes, gazed a while on her who could not throw gaze on me, and then I moved away to the window. The rain beat strongly against the panes. The wind blew tempestuously. One lies there, I thought, who will soon be beyond the war of earthly elements. Whither will that spirit, now struggling to quiet its material tenement, flit when, at length, released? And pondering the great mystery, I thought of Helen Burns, recalled her dying words her faith, her doctrine of equality of disembodied souls. I was still listening in thought to her well-remembered tones, still picturing her pale and spiritual aspect, her wasted face and sublime gaze as she laid on her placid deathbed and whispered her longing to be restored to her divine father's bosom. When a feeble voice murmured from the couch behind, who is that? I knew Mrs. Reed had not spoken for days. Was she reviving? I went up to her. It is I, Aunt Reed. Who I was her answer. Who are you? 
looking at me with surprise and a sort of alarm, but still not wildly. You are quite a stranger to me. Where is Bessie? She is at the lodge, aunt. Aunt, she replied. Who calls me aunt? You are not one of the Gibsons. And yet I know you. That face and the eyes and the forehead are quite familiar to me. You are like, well, you are like Jane Eyre. I said nothing. I was afraid of occasioning some shock by declaring my identity. Yet, said she, I am afraid it is a mistake. My thoughts deceive me. I wish to see Jane Eyre, and I fancy a likeness where none exists. Besides, in eight years she must be so changed. I now gently assured her that I was the person she supposed and desired me to be, and seeing that I was understood and that her senses were quite collected, I explained how Bessie had sent her husband to fetch me from Thornfield. I am very ill, I know, she said ere long. I was trying to turn myself a few minutes since, and I find I cannot move a limb. It is as well I should ease my mind before I die. What we think little of in health burdens us at such an hour as the present is to me. Is the nurse here, or is there no one in the room but you? I assured her we were alone. Well, I have twice done you a wrong which I regret now. One was in breaking the promise which I gave my husband to bring you up as my own child. The other, she stopped. After all, it is of no great importance, perhaps, she murmured to herself. And then I may get better, and to humble myself so to her is painful. She made an effort to alter her position, but failed. Her face changed. She seemed to experience some inward sensation. The precursor, perhaps, of the last pang. Well, I must get it over. Eternity is before me, and I had better tell her. Go to my dressing case, open it, and take out a letter. You will see there. I obeyed her direction. Read the letter, she said. It was short, and thus conceived. Madam, will you have the goodness to send me the address of my niece, Jane Eyre, and tell me how she is? It is my intention to write shortly and desire her to come with me at Madeira. Providence has blessed my endeavors to secure a competency, and as I am unmarried and childless, I wish to adopt her during my life and bequeath her at my death whatever I may leave. I am, madam, etc., etc., John Eyre, Madeira. It was dated three years back. Why did I never hear of this? I asked. Because I disliked you too fixedly and thoroughly ever to lend a hand in lifting you to prosperity. I could not forget your conduct to me, Jane. The fury which you once turned on me, the tone in which you declared you abhorred me the worst of anybody in the world, the unchildlike look and voice with which you affirmed the very thought of me made you sick and asserted that I treated you with miserable cruelty. I could not forget my own sensations. When you thus started up and poured out the venom of your mind, I felt fear, as if an animal I had struck or pushed had looked up at me with human eyes and cursed me in a man's voice. Bring me some water, oh make haste. Holy shit. Gonna throw that water on your head? That's vivid. Yeah, dude. Dear Mrs. Reed, said I, as I offered her the draft she required, think no more of all this. Let it pass away from your mind. Forgive me for my passionate language. I was a child then. Eight, nine years have passed since that day. She heeded nothing of what I said. But when she had tasted the water and drawn breath, she went on thus. I tell you, I could not forget it. And I took my revenge. For you to be adopted by your uncle and placed in a state of ease and comfort was what I could not endure. I wrote to him. I said I was sorry for his disappointment, but Jane Eyre was dead. She had died of typhus fever at Lowood. Now act as you please. Write and contradict my assertion. Expose my falsehood as soon as you like. You were born, I think, to be my torment. My last hour is racked by the recollection of a deed which, but for you, I should have never been tempted to commit. Jesus. If you could but be persuaded to think no more of it, aunt, and to regard me with kindness and forgiveness, you have a very bad disposition, said she. 
and to this day I feel it impossible to understand how for nine years you could be patient and quiescent under any treatment, and in the tenth break out all fire and violence, I can never comprehend. My disposition is not as bad as you think. I am passionate but not vindictive. Many a time as a child I should have been glad to love you if you would have let me, and I long earnestly to be reconciled to you now. Kiss me, aunt. I approached my cheek to her lips. She would not touch it. She said I oppressed her by leaning over the bed and again demanded water. As I laid her down, for I raised her and supported her on my arm while she drunk, I covered her ice-cold and clammy hand with mine. The feeble fingers shrunk from my touch. The glazing eyes shunned my gaze. Love me then, or hate me, as you will, I said at last. You have my full and free forgiveness. Ask now for God's and be at peace. Poor suffering woman. It was too late for her to make now the effort to change her habitual frame of mind. Living, she had ever hated me. Dying, she must hate me still. The nurse now entered and Bessie followed. I yet lingered half an hour longer, hoping to see some sign of amity. But she gave none. She was fast relapsing into stupor. Nor did her mind again rally. At 12 o'clock that night, she died. I was not prescient to close her eyes, nor were either of her daughters. They came to tell us the next morning that all was over. She was by that time laid out. Eliza and I went to look at her. Georgiana, who had burst out into loud weeping, said she dared not go. There was stretched Sarah Reed's once robust and active frame, rigid and still. Her eye of flint was covered with its cold lid, her soul. Her brow and strong traits wore yet the impress of her inexorable soul. A strange and solemn object was that court to me. I gazed on it with gloom and pain. Nothing soft, nothing sweet, nothing pitying or hopeful or subduing did it inspire, only a grating anguish for her woes, not my loss, and a somber tearless dismay at the fearfulness of death in such a form. Eliza surveyed her parent calmly. After a silence of some minutes, she observed, with her constitution, she should have lived to a good old age. Her life was shortened by trouble, and then a spasm constricted her mouth for an instant, and it passed away. She turned and left the room, and so did I. Neither of us had dropped a tear. Ding, ding! That is the end of chapter 21 and the end of Aunt Reed. Mm. Quite a lot of vengeful soliloquies in that one, but none from Jane. There's a particular kind of Christianity that is very evidenced in this chapter, and we have a sort of spectrum of it, with Jane really coming into like the strength of her convictions and her feeling of like sanguinicity. And then we've got Eliza, who's making the you know new altar cover for two hours a day and going to church every day and has nothing to give in terms of comfort or consolation to anyone in the house. Like the comparison of Christianity here is pretty loud to me. Also, like, Protestantism. I think Eliza might be talking about becoming a Roman Catholic nun. That's exactly what I thought, too. And she's like, no one's going to, like, deal with... And the fact that she needs money to go do it. If you're going to become a Roman Catholic nun, you have to give a kind of sufferance to the church. I think that's what she's doing. But the fact that she's keeping that a secret is pretty telling as well. Well, it wasn't the done thing to become a Roman Catholic nun in 1840. Yeah, and this is a very Protestant book, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I think the fact that she is becoming a nun is a way of the book allowing some judgment 
to shine on Eliza. Like she's not the right kind of Christian for this text in more ways than one. And just to affirm it, it's lightly gesturing towards what would have been a really controversial character choice, I think, at the time of the publication, if I'm remembering my history lessons correctly. Absolutely. I mean, Catholics still couldn't hold office at this time. Right. What do we think of Georgiana? What do we think of the thing that she accused her sister of that her sister let stand? That some titled handsome gentleman named Lord Veer, like... Was going to propose to her and then she... Like, lost him because Eliza couldn't have that. I don't know. I don't know what to do with it or the fact that, like, Eliza didn't have an answer for that accusation because it felt like... I'm sure it really happened. Yeah, that's sort of my read of it, too, which makes me feel sad for Georgiana because, like, now in even more reduced circumstances with a dead mother, yeah, a dead brother who's left the house in the financial situation and errors, and now a sister, if she does indeed become a Roman Catholic, like, Georgiana will be ostracized. She's done for. Well, and I'm, like, terrified for Georgiana in the same way I'm worried for Bessie and, and her family. Like, what's going to become of all this staff? Exactly. Who probably haven't been paid yet for the year, you know? Yeah. And probably won't be. Right, because the debtors are going to come claim their their money. Yeah. I have to say, though, regarding Mrs. Reed, I have a bit more sympathy for her. And I don't know if it's in spite of the book or because of the book. I think it's both. I think I totally understand her frustration of loving her children bottomlessly and seeing her husband only give that kind of affection towards this, like, interloper. And just speaking in my personal life, you know... It is not uncommon for men to be really uncomfortable with their own biological children in a way that, you know, if they have stepchildren or they can treat them differently. I'm not saying like, you know, whatever, not all men, but it is something that I would say I've I've indirect personal experience with. Yeah, I mean, I think it was also telling not only that he was caring for this baby and then the comment that like he lavished that attention to Jane at that age and didn't lavish that kind of attention on his biological children at the same age that there was something about Jane's infancy. And I think like, you know, I think there's a lot there. I also think the fact that like Mrs. Reed took pains to be like, you know, the sister was a favorite and that he spoke against her being disowned and that like Mrs. Reed, the implication of that felt like she was threatened by the love that he bore his sister. And I and I mean threatened not in like a sexual sense, but like in the senses that like, you know, people at this time weren't getting married for love and he had all this like caring and intimate affection for his sister. So like, you know, maybe he shared confidences with her that he didn't share with Mrs. Reed and like that created a jealousy that then was extended to baby Jane. But also like a, a financial security sense, right? Like what if he chose to support his sister in some sort of capacity and she was a woman who had put herself in a position of needing to be supported in exchange for love which is an excuse and not a responsibility yeah although we see her uncle did take love as a responsibility and in a lot of ways i respect mrs reed for not groveling for being like this is what happened here are the facts i have unburdened myself i've done it for my own edification i don't like you i'm not going to forgive you and i'm a little disgusted i think she's almost disgusted that jane has not come to her as this fiery figure you know of her memory when she said like i hated and feared you in the way that i would have if i'd trapped an animal and it had human eyes and spoken a man's voice and cursed me like here again is the supernatural right jane is being compared to like an animal familiar or something like something not of this world and i think that 
it's just like the way in which this book operates where it's like there was never going to be a time that like Mrs. Reed was ever going to understand Jane and Jane was never going to be understood by Mrs. Reed and rather than like dealing with that or dealing with even the harsh way she talks about her dead husband who did nothing but like love his sister and niece like when she refers to like John as being weak or Mr. Reed being weak there seemed to me something in that about like Jane functioned almost like a a mirror of Mrs. Reed's sins and so she hated to look at it because then she was forced to confront the fact that she'd broken her vow she was forced to confront the fact that like her husband was dead and like weak and all these other things like Jane just like functioned like the worst kind of projector screen and also wasn't like a normal kid who could have been cowed or was pretty or like did all the kid things she like had a will and a mind which I think made all of that worse for Mrs. Reed and like that you know you're right like she wasn't apologizing for that shit she's like I never loved you and I will never love you and I said that you were dead yeah I told people you were dead uh, and you can do without what you will now like it's almost like she's not trying to like unburden her soul she's like I've gotten all I can out of this you know I think she's afraid of going to hell and like I think it's almost like a little bit more of revenge to be like and I did this to you and I regret nothing yeah that's what it felt like in this reading like it's good for Jane I guess to have gone there and said like love me or hate me I don't care I think that's the power move I'm supposed to see on the surface but I think ultimately the reason why I like can never forgive Mrs. Reed is that she's like I'm not sorry yeah like I'm gonna give you this information because I don't want to go to hell but like I wish I didn't have to. And if I get better, humbling myself before you makes me feel terrible. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. And she only chooses to humble herself when she's reminded that her body is is dying. Yeah. She feels that final pang. Like, how detestable a person. Like, oh, God. But also, like, how true. Like, maybe we don't change right like and maybe like respectable like I like that she didn't like she was honest she was honest like she was true to herself and also she didn't try to like game the heaven system you know I mean she kind of did like why reveal it at all like why call for Jane if you've been telling people for years that she's dead like I think this was definitely a fear of hell she wasn't asking for Jane's forgiveness she wasn't going to like gild the lily right but I think there was no reason to tell Jane like why not just burn the letter why keep the letter from John Eyre maybe because this I mean like this is purely speculative but maybe because she knows that Jane can now collect that money and will then take care of the finances that need to be taken care of like giving Jane the letter also gives her access to accounts that's true bringing her back into the fold brings her back into the fold right reminds her of like you know her attachments right are you just going to let Georgiana flounder this human being before you I don't know if I believe Mrs. Reed is like a truly spiritual woman like I think I think a fear of hell would only come to bear if it was and also see I don't I think that she views her spirituality as transactional like I 100% believe that Mrs. Reed believes in the supernatural not unlike the way that Bessie does but I think she also believes in the Christian version of hell and what's interesting to me about Mrs. Reed is that it seems that she's not as interested in like God's forgiveness or like what those pieces of it would look like but that she has like the physical manifestation of the worst parts of Christianity does have bearing for her. Can you talk about the physical manifestations of the worst parts of Christianity, what that specifically means. Having like the redemptive 
feeling of forgiveness that like Jane does have and like gives her power. We don't see Mrs. Reed have that. And it doesn't seem that she's truly unburdened either, right? She just goes down with this like sort of harpy narrative. And I think, you know, in that moment when she says like, I'm dying, or like she feels that last pain. And I think like it is that fear of hell. And like the fear of hell seems to me to be like the worst parts of Christianity, like that you get none of the blessings of like being quote unquote redeemed or whatever. But like, you're afraid that the devil will torture you for eternity. Yeah. I mean, I I do feel like it's a given that she believes in Christian hell. But I agree. I don't think it's spiritual. I think it's transactional. I think the way that she conceives of her relationship with a higher being is transactional. You do bad things, you go to hell. Here's one thing that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. But my feeling is, is that there's perhaps some more horse trading going on here than just spiritual, which is why I think she gives Jane the letter. I think perhaps she is worried about her children still, her surviving children. I mean, that's a possibility. The fact that like neither of them are like visiting her and like she's not in her right mind makes me think that like, I mean, it's not obvious in the text that that's at play, but I agree like that could certainly be at play. She has been animatedly concerned about the welfare of her children throughout the text. Also, unsurprising, some of the meanest stuff, some of the meanest words exchanged between two sisters. (laughs) That was pretty tough. You know, I I think the fact that those two, not that the two women exchanged that conversation, but the fact that Eliza is deciding to extricate herself completely from her family, I think is one of those moments when Charlotte Bronte herself is present in the text and giving us a very clear judgment. Like, I know that I'm not supposed to be forgiving of Eliza or forgiving of Georgiana or forgiving of Mrs. Reed, even with this additional context, because, you know, I think Charlotte Bronte was so close with her family nothing could be like a greater indication of something truly sour and wrong than wanting to separate yourself completely and then by like alluding to this idea of roman catholicism as eliza's modus operandi to finally like cleave the family right um from one another is uh especially illuminating Anything else? She draws Mr. Rochester, unsurprisingly. He's called an ugly man by the uninitiated. <laughs> A not not flexible mouth. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Yeah, I, and like they're flirting at the beginning about the money. <laughs> like, give it back, Jane. But there's something else. Like, I'm not totally convinced that Jane doesn't have vengeance on the brain, right? Because forgiveness is hers to give, right? And in fact, you know, her aunt says, like, I don't care if you forgive me. And Jane's like, well, I don't care if you don't care. You're getting my forgiveness, you know, almost. I don't think the book describes it that way. That's how I feel about it. I mean, when somebody says love me or hate me at will, you have my forgiveness. Like, that's so clearly, like... I have the high ground. Yeah, but she like avoids talking to Mrs. Reed or like pressing the subject. It's not like she goes and visits Mrs. Reed every day. She doesn't visit her for 10 days. And that tells me that she's, what is she waiting for? It feels like a bit of gamesmanship. Like she wants Mrs. Reed to want her to the point where she supersedes that desire over her desire to be with Rochester. Rochester has told her what he wants, right? He's like, please come back in a week. And she's like, I'll see what I can do, which is, you know, fine to say, but to actually do it, to actually wait longer than a week on a woman who turned you out to call you up to talk to you. I mean, in some ways, I I think you're right. Like you're alluding to the fact that she seems to be testing Rochester in some way. She seems to be testing Rochester, but I I think perhaps she's showing Rochester she can stay away longer. But I, I think the thing that energizes her to do that is truly wanting Mrs. Reed to humble herself. 
Yes, I agree. That idea of a reconciliation when she's like, kiss me aunt. I was like, the, who is this for? Like, is this for you? Yeah. Is this for Mrs. Reed? I don't think this is for either of you. So then what are we doing in this very awkward and terrible moment that makes me feel bad? Yeah, trying to hold her hand. Yeah. She's so insistent. Mm-hmm. It's cruel, almost. She doesn't want to forgive you in that way. Quit pestering a dying woman. It's cruel on both their parts, I think. And the fact that, like, even at this end extremity, even after admitting that she told John Eyre that Jane was dead, that she can't consent to have her hand held. Like, that's some cold shit on the part of Mrs. Reed. And, like, that is some cold shit on the part of Jane being insistent about, like, you you know, we're going to have this reconciliation. And I think the book sees Jane as the protagonist, like, the good guy in that sense in this scene. But I'm inclined to agree with you. I'm like, Mrs. Reed sucks. And, like, I will never truly have any kind of real sympathy for her because I think she's terrible. But, like, I take your meaning on this one. I think Jane's... This is not a scene of altruistic forgiveness. No. And I would say like, yeah, Mrs. Reed isn't giving Jane what she wants, but Jane isn't giving Mrs. Reed what she wants either. But the only person who has stated what they want is Mrs. Reed. She has said, I don't want this, right? I think like the real cruelty is knowing what someone wants and not giving it to them. I heard something, it was like one of those like, okay, ladies type quotes, but it rang really true, which was like, if he wanted to, he would. Like if someone wanted to know you, if someone wanted to make you happy, they would seek out a way to do it and they would listen to you, right? Because that's the only way forward. If someone really wanted to make you happy instead of just like placating you. Jane doesn't really want to make Mrs. Reed happy. She doesn't really want Mrs. Reed's forgiveness. She doesn't even really want to give Mrs. Reed her forgiveness. She wants to upset Mrs. Reed because Mrs. Reed says, I don't want you to kiss me. So then she tries to hold her hand. That's cruel. I think it's complicated by the fact that Mrs. Reed called for Jane specifically. I think it's complicated by the fact that like she did make that first move into wanting to unburden herself in the transactional fear of hell. It didn't feel this way in the book because like Jane's actually quite circumspect about this, but in our conversation, it seems to me that like Jane probably read too much into that. Well, I think Jane read what she wanted to read. Right, exactly. She wanted Mrs. Reed, you know, she's not going there just to see what Mrs. Reed wants. Mm -hmm. She wants to kind of, and once again, this is just a reading of a scene, like trying to be like objective about it. But like, if I was seeing this happen in real life, I would be like, fuck's sake, Jane, leave her alone. Yeah, her son just died in ignominious conditions. She just had a stroke like 12 days ago. Like she's a bitter old lady, but like fucking let her die. Here's what you know, right? Like, it's just like the book is is presenting Jane as this altruistic personality in this moment, and I don't buy it. Like, here's what we know about Mrs. Reed. She wants to see Jane, but Jane refuses to go up and see her again until she feels like it 10 days later, right? Why not just, like, visit each day and see what's going on, right? Because you know that Mrs. Reed wants to say something to you. She's trying to remember it. Why not check in, right, if you're being altruistic? Then once again, Mrs. Reed expresses, she's like, I don't want you to forgive me. I don't give a shit. Like, I understand you as this strange creature, and I always have, and I've never liked you. I just want to unburden myself. All Jane had to do then was read the letter and leave. Trying to give her a smooch 
trying to hold her hand as she shuffled off this mortal coil, being like, hey, I know I'm the person you like the least. I'm going to be the last person who touches you in your life. But I also think like that's part of this wider conversation about this scene about religion and compassion and forgiveness. Like both the girls are downstairs. Eliza never visits her mother. Georgiana only spends five minutes there. A day. The nurse that they've hired is constantly. But she goes every day. She does go every day. Like, yeah, absolutely. But only spends five minutes. The nurse that they've hired is like dodging out every time that she can. And then there's loyal Bessie, right? Who's just like unambiguously good in the text. And I think like that's all part of like that tableau is also created to show us that like not only is this family broken as you very beautifully elucidated, but there's also something so tragic and terribly broken in Mrs. Reed that she's not getting any like that nobody wants to comfort her. That it is Jane, the least loved person in Mrs. Reed's life there at the end, offering the last physical consolation before she shuffles off this mortal coil and she refuses it. Like this is, I think, in the text, another moment to show us how shitty Reed is. But I think you're right to say that it is also an unconscious moment showing us how shitty Jane can be. Yeah. All right, any any parting thoughts? You know, loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah. <laughs>